Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. Before we get into the study tonight, I wanted to share with you guys. The first one is, um, we're in a try starting kind of a new thing. Um, I know most of you guys have probably realized that we've been sort of recording the messages, and we're posting those. Um, Ryan has a uh, YouTube, I believe it's on YouTube, uh, channel that they're being posted on, and also as a podcast. And so if you guys miss a week or whatever and you want to listen to it, they're up there, and, and you can go back and, and do that. But we also are going to add a thing to it where um, we're going to do – kind of talk about different topics in that from time to time. Um, but one of them is we're asking you guys, if you guys have questions, whether theological questions or things like that, to give those to us, and that way we could kind of use those. We want to we, we don't want to just put up stuff. We want to actually answer questions and that, that people actually have. And so if you have questions about the Bible, maybe you're doing your Bible reading, and you're like, what is this? I have no idea. You can either send it to me, or we're going to have a place where you can write it down, and we'll um, kind of talk through those and answer them and post that up, and you guys could uh, have that answered. So I think that would be an interesting thing to do. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, especially before the guys, is I want to encourage you guys to go to the men's retreat coming up at the end of September. And uh, it's going to be here, which is nice. It makes it more affordable. Um, I believe it's $75. Does anybody know? $75. If that's a problem for you, come talk to me, and, and we'll help you out and make sure you could go. I don't want anybody uh, in here to not go because of money. But it would be great if we all could go and kind of just hang out together and have some fun doing that. Um, one last thing. We're going to be doing, I don't know the exact date yet, but be praying for this. I'm excited. Um, I, my sister was in town, and, and so I made a big breakfast for everybody, like French toast, and it was really good. And so I was like, man, this would be great to do for like a breakfast for Devoted. So we're going to put on like a, a French toast breakfast one Saturday, uh, actually for the whole church, and kind of have it as a, a fundraiser for us and an event. We'll have some great worship. We'll have a... Maybe I'll do it, or somebody will give a, a short message, maybe a testimony or something, and enjoy some, some great breakfast and, and just have some fun. So, so keep that in prayer. Uh, those are things that we have coming up. But uh, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then uh, we can get into the study. God, I just ask right now, uh, for a filling of your spirit. I need you. I realize I can't do anything to accomplish anything in the spiritual world unless you move. Uh, apart from you, I could do nothing. But in Christ, I could do all things, Lord. And so I pray that you fill me with your spirit, that you speak through me, Lord. You know exactly where each person is at, what they need, Lord. And I pray that you would speak that, that you would prophetically speak tonight. You speak words of edification, exhortation, and comfort to each one of us. Lord, I pray that you'd feed our souls, that you'd give us that manna from heaven that would satisfy us where we don't hunger or thirst anymore. I pray that you'd fill us with springs of living water and come out of us and we'd bless others with your spirit, with your word, Lord. But again, we need to meet with you. I pray that you would speak to us, that you'd minister to us, Lord. I pray each one of us would be humble enough to take off our sandals and expose our feet so you could wash them, Lord, that you could minister to us right now, Lord. And, and we just pray that you would be exalted and lifted up. So we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're at the point where we're talking about justification by faith. That's the topic for tonight. And we're continuing our study of the doctrines that are presented in what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith was written a few hundred years ago, and what happened was all these pastors and theologians got together and decided 
what are the most essential doctrines and practices that if you're a professing Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you need to know, that you need to apply to your life, that you need to confess to be orthodox. And so we're going through these, and we're not necessarily teaching the, the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we're using the topics as uh, kind of a, a guide to go through and cover all the major doctrines and practices for the church. A few weeks ago, we started to get into the, the order of salvation, the order of salvation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says that some, he, he predestined, and whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified, right? And that's speaking of the order of salvation, and now there's other elements of salvation that are left out of that, that we're going to cover in the next few weeks, but we see that God is taking us systematically through these uh, this progress of, of things that he's doing to us to make us more and more like Jesus. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about the nature of man after the fall, whether we have a free will, whether we're actually able to choose God or choose Christ or not. And I talked about how we have the liberty to choose Christ, but we don't have the actual ability. Remember, I, I used the illustration of buying a Lamborghini. I have the freedom to go down to the Lamborghini dealership and to buy a Lamborghini. Right? There's nothing that's stopping me from doing that. There's no law against it. There's no sign outside the store that says you have to have two arms to shop here or anything like that. Right? But I, I, I can't go get one because I lack the necessary resources to buy one. I have the liberty, but I don't have the ability, right? Because I don't have the $450,000 that a Lamborghini costs. And, and it's kind of the same way with a sinner coming to faith. They have the liberty to come to Jesus. They have the liberty to accept Christ. They just don't have the ability because they lack the necessary resources. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that the things of God are foolishness to the natural man because they don't understand that because they're spiritually discerned and the natural man doesn't have the spirit of God. So it, it, it's impossible for him to see the spiritual realm and understand the spiritual realm and, and to truly want Christ. So, so, so we talked about that. And because man doesn't have the ability to come to Christ on his own, God has to effectually call him or effectively call him to Jesus, right? Remember in John chapter 6, verse 44, what does Jesus say? If nobody could come to me unless the Father draws them to me. That's the effectual call. We distinguish between God's general call and God's effectual call. Does anybody remember the difference between God's general call and God's effectual call? Or effective call? God's general call goes out to everybody. Right? God's commanding all sinners everywhere to come to Christ and receive forgiveness. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Right? Everybody, come, come. Yet the ones that are going to actually come are coming because God is drawing them to Jesus. Right? That's why the church is called the called. Right? The church literally means the called out ones. Right? Because we're, we're effectively called out of the world and into Christ. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen, illustrating the two different calls. And so tonight we're going to talk about how God actually accomplishes this. How does he take somebody, uh, a, a sinner, how does a holy God take somebody who's sinful and make him right with himself and bring him into relationship with him and remain a just and holy God? This is the doctrine of justification. This is the problem that we're going to look at tonight. And Paul masterfully explains it here in our text in Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where there is boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so the key word in this passage is righteousness. We see it four times. And another key word is justify or, or justification, which is used another three times. And now these two theological terms are, are somewhat related. They actually come from the same root word, dikalo. Uh, and sometimes uh, different translations use these words kind of interchangeably. For instance, in Matthew 5, 6, in the New Living Translation, it says this, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Right? It's, we know it's usually blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But the NLT translates it justice, because it's the same root word. These two terms are tied together. Uh, your first fill-in is declared. Justification means we are declared righteous by God. So when we're talking about justification and, and righteousness, uh, these two terms are, are, are so intertwined, because justification is the process where God makes a sinner righteous or declares a sinner righteous. Think this, right? I'm sure you guys have heard this. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. That's kind of what God does in justification. This guy, Merlin Carruthers, he was the author of a book, Prison to Praise, had firsthand experience of what it's like to be declared, declared righteous. During World War II, he joined the army. Anxious to get into some action, Carruthers went AWOL, but was caught and sentenced to five years in prison. Instead of sending him to prison, the judge told him he could serve his term by staying in the army for five years. The judge told him if he left the army before the five years ended, he would have to spend the rest of his term in prison. Carruthers was released from the army before the five-year term had passed. So he returned to the prosecutor's office to find out where he would be spending the remainder of his sentence. To his surprise and delight, Carruthers was told that he had received a full pardon from President Truman. The prosecutor explained, that means that your record is completely clear, just as if you had never gotten involved with the law. That's what justification is. Notice how I said it means to be declared righteous by God. It doesn't mean to be made righteous by God. That's sanctification. And this is where the Catholic Church and us differ greatly. You see, the Catholic Church doesn't say that we are imputed with righteousness. It says that you are infused with righteousness through the sacraments. So when a baby is baptized, it says that they are infused with righteousness. They're literally made righteous. But then they're going and their life and sinning and righteousness seeps out. So you got to constantly have it refilled again through something like penance and other sacraments. And then if you die lacking in righteousness, then you need to burn it off in a place called purgatory, or you need to get somebody else's merit applied to you. Right? We, we, we don't believe in that. We don't believe that justification makes you righteous. We believe that justification declares you righteous. It's a legal term where God says you are not guilty, you are innocent, I'm declaring you righteous. But we're still sinners. Right? And, and being made righteous is a different process. That's called sanctification. You see, salvation is spoken of, and uh, there's many components to salvation, but the three main components are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification means to be declared righteous, right? where, where God says that you, you are no longer guilty. You're acceptable. You're able to come into my presence. 
Sanctification is a little bit different. Sanctification uh, could be spoken of two different ways. It could be spoken of positionally and practically. Uh, once justified, somebody becomes a saint, and, and, and this happens positionally. You're, you're, you're positionally declared holy and set apart for God. But then practically, you're taken from one degree of glory to the next and conformed into the image of Jesus. As we walk with Christ, we become more and more like Christ. This is the process of sanctification. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, But we are, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's sanctification. Now, glorification is the final product. It's the final stage where we're made like Jesus, where we're given glorified bodies, perfect bodies. And this is going to happen at the rapture. But justification by faith alone, this is the first step. This is We need to be declared righteous so that we could come into God's presence and then we could start to be sanctified and become more and more like Jesus. But this doctrine of justification by faith might be one of the most important doctrines we have, if not the most important. It's definitely been the most contested throughout church history. Uh, this is the primary doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. There was, was literally wars fought between Christians about you know, how people are saved and what right doctrine is. And many men gave up their lives to bring the church back to an awareness that God justifies people on the basis of faith in Christ, not on the basis of works and sacraments. John Calvin said justification is the hinge that all religion hangs on. Not just Christianity, all religion. Because that is the point of religion. How does a sinner get made right with God? And that's what justification tries to answer. Luther said this, justification is the chief point of the whole Bible. Because it focuses on what Luther thought was the heart of the Bible, justification by faith. Luther believed that this article was vital. If that article stands, the church stands. If it falls, the church falls, Luther said. Justification is the answer that all religion is trying to provide. In Job chapter 9, verse 2, Job says this. Uh, his three miserable comforters, they've been telling him, hey, this stuff is happening to you. This horrible trial has entered your life because you're a sinner. You must have really done something to piss off God, they're saying. And, and Job agrees with them. He says, in truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be made right before God? Well, that, that was Job, what Job was saying. How could a man be made right with God? All the way back to the first book in the Bible in time, Job is crying, how can I be made right with God? And that's what people have been saying throughout all of history. And justification by faith is going to answer that. Many have called this passage the most important passage in the entire Bible. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was one of the premier preachers of the 20th century in Europe, and he, uh, he would teach through books of the Bible. He, he was one of the first ones to do this, to teach, teach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And uh, he's got some great commentaries. His, set, his commentary set on Ephesians is six books, over close to 5,000 pages. And that's how in-depth he taught. Well, anyways, when he came to teach the book of Romans to his church, he started with this passage in Romans chapter 3. He didn't start at Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Because he said, something might happen to me, and I might not get through this passage. And this passage is too important to wait. So he started with this passage in Romans 3, and then did Romans 1.1, 1, 1, and worked his way through the book of Romans, because it was that important. So tonight I want to kind of pick this passage apart and see what truths it has about justification that we could glean from. So the first one that we see is righteousness can't be achieved through law-keeping. Look at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. These first two words in our passage tonight are, but now. And Luther said that these two words might be the most glorious words in the entire Bible. Because Paul had just spent the previous couple chapters, all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about the wrath of God and how the wrath of God is upon every person because of their unrighteousness. He concludes that section with a rather damning description of fallen man. In verses 10 through 20 of chapter 3, the radical corruption and total inability of man is on display. Let's look at this. Starting in verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You read these verses, and it kind of leaves us feeling pretty hopeless. Right? What are we to do? Verse 9 says that we can't even open our mouths to make an excuse for our depravity. We're guilty before God. What are we to do? It says that we can't be justified by the works of the law, because through the works of the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law tells me I'm a sinner. But then verse 21, but God. God made a way apart from the works of the law. That's so comforting. Because verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. This is because the law wasn't designed to make us righteous. The law is a mirror that's going to show us how unlike God we are. It shows us how unholy we are. It's through the law that we have a knowledge of sin. You know, we tend to think that we're pretty good because we compare ourselves with other people. But then we read the, read the Bible and we realize <laughs> that we aren't as good as we think we are because there's a whole lot of stuff in the Bible that tells us, hey, we're doing that wrong. We're guilty. These are things that society doesn't say are, are that bad, but compared to God's standard of holiness, we're miles off. So the law tells us we're guilty. That's what the law does. Paul says that the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor, to show us that we have a need for a savior. Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we may be made justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You want to know why our works of the law can't justify us? Isaiah tells us. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. You see that? Our most righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That word for filthy garment is literally a, a dirty minstrel rag. It's a used Nazi pack. <laughs> That's what our, our greatest work that we could come up with is that to God. That's how far off we are from his righteousness, from his standard. So our deeds aren't going to, they're definitely not going to commend us to God. If you're going to try to win somebody's favor and you take them a dirty maxi bag, <laughs> here you go. You know, that's, that's not going to work.
So we need a way apart from the law. But the law still needed to be fulfilled. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the covenants, right? How there was the covenant of works that God gave in the garden. And it was Adam and Eve, they had one work, right? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they blew that. They didn't have perfect personal obedience to the law of God. And so God instituted the covenant of grace. And what did the covenant of grace do? It provided a way for a substitute to fulfill that law of works on behalf of us. But that substitute still needed to come and obey the law. Justification is possible because of Christ's active and passive obedience. Christ's active obedience is that he obeyed the entire law from the time he was a child through his entire life. He fulfilled every demand that the law required. He was 100% obedient to the demands of God's holy standards. And his passive obedience is that he took the punishment that we deserve for our unrighteousness. He he died on the cross. He took the the, the criminal's death, taking the penalty for sin and disobedience. And then this obedience of Jesus is imputed or transferred to our account, allowing us to meet God's standard. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But the first thing I wanted us to see is that God made a way for us to be justified apart from our keeping of the law which is a good thing because it's impossible for us to actually perfectly obey the law. Point number two, God's imputing of righteousness is not a new thing. Put in the word new. Look at verse 21 again. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Making somebody righteous apart from the law is something that was witnessed by the law and the prophets. This term, the law and the prophets, is really a a phrase used meaning the entire Old Testament. You had the law, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and then the prophets, the the books after that. So it's speaking of the whole Old Testament. In chapter 4, Paul's going to give us two examples of how justification works. And it's interesting because he doesn't choose Matthew, Levi, to use as an example of how justification works. He doesn't choose Mark. He doesn't choose Luke. He doesn't choose John. He doesn't use his own story to talk about how somebody was justified. No, he goes all the way back and he uses Abraham and David. In chapter 4, starting in verse One, it says, What shall we say then? Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What's that talking about? Well, that's talking about Genesis chapter 15, where the angel of the Lord is meeting with Abraham, and, and he's complaining, and he's saying, hey, you know what? The angel of the Lord comes in and says, do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. The reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have given me no offspring and no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. But the one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up to the heavens, Abram, and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And here it is, verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. It was accounted to Abraham as righteousness because he believed the Lord. He exercised faith. Faith is hearing the Lord speak and responding appropriately. Being able to hear the Lord speak and respond appropriately. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And the second he did that, he was accredited with righteousness. 
So we see here there isn't one way to be justified in the Old Testament and a different way in the New. There isn't one way to be saved as a Jew and a different way as a Christian. The Bible shows great continuity in the way that the people are saved throughout the history of redemption. And it's through faith in Jesus. So we could be saved apart from the law. And this way that we're being saved isn't something new. All throughout the Bible, people have been saved this way apart from the law. Point number three, righteousness comes by faith in Jesus. So fill in the word faith in Jesus. Look at verse 21 and 22. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. I mentioned a few minutes ago that we obtain righteousness through imputation or reckoning or accounting. This is where God takes Christ's righteousness and accredits it to our account. It's a accrediting term. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's a double imputation here. Right? Our sin was imputed unto Christ on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God we deserve for our disobedience. And then his righteous acts, his perfect life is accredited to us. This is how we're able to stand before God. The word righteous or just can be used to meet a standard. The picture is this, a, a woman going into the market to buy a measure of uh, wheat. right? And, and she goes in and she's like, I want a measure of wheat. And so they pull out a scale. And on one side they put a rock, it's a set weight, and the other side they put the wheat. And when they get it perfectly balanced, they declare it a just measure, a righteous measure, because it's, it's fair, it's exact. But the standard to be in God's presence is absolute perfection. Remember in John chapter 16, Jesus says, uh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, it's, it's to your advantage that I leave, because if I leave, I could send the helper to you. And he's going to come, he's going to be with you, he's going to be in you. And then in chapter 16, he says, this helper is going to come, and it's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And sin, because they don't believe in me. And righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. And in judgment, because the judge of this world, the ruler of this world, has been judged. Right? So, so we read that, and the first and the third one kind of make sense, right? He's going to convict the world of sin because they reject Jesus. He's going to convict the world of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. But the second one seems kind of odd, right? And it convict the world of righteousness because I ascend to the Father. How, how does this fit? Well, because when Jesus ascended to the Father, he proved what the standard was. He's the one who's able to go into God's presence because it's absolute perfection. That's what the standard is. He's the only one that's able to to ascend to the Father, because he's the only one who is perfect. And we need that standard. God dwells in inapproachable light. God is a consuming fire. If sin goes anywhere near the glory of God, it's going to consume it. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 20, uh, 33? He's up on Sinai. He's with God, and he says this, Hey, God, just do this one thing. Show me your glory. Show me your face. And what does God say? I can't. You're God. <laughs> it's too much for you. But I can do this. I can pluck out a piece of a rock, and I could tuck you in there, and, and I could walk by, and I could cover you, and you could see my hinder parts. You could see my afterglow as I go by. Right? That's because Moses was a sinner. And if he was fully in the presence of God, he would have been consumed. Because he, he, he didn't meet the standard of being in the presence of God. So how do we obtain this righteousness, this perfect righteousness? 
we, we're inherent by faith that's imputed to us. Romans 1, 16 and 17, before Paul starts getting into the wrath of God and bringing everybody in the whole world under condemnation of sin, he says this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. want to be made righteous, we need to live by faith. And it's through the gospel, the power of God to save, through believing in the gospel message. You see, we can be accepted because when God looks at us, he no longer sees our filthy rags, but instead he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's through Christ's righteousness that we're accepted. You know, if you look through a piece of red glass, everything's red. If you look through a piece of blue grass, everything's blue. If you look through a piece of yellow glass, everything's yellow, and so on. But when we believe in Jesus as our Savior, God looks at us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees us in all white holiness of his Son. Our sins are imputed to the account of Christ. And his sin, or his righteousness is imputed to our account. You know, I just learned this today. This is fascinating. Uh, the Chinese symbol, right, you know, their characters. If you take the symbol for the lamb, or lamb, and you superimpose it on the symbol for me, you, you know what symbol you get? You get the symbol for righteousness. That is amazing, because that is absolutely perfect theology. Because the only thing that's going to make me righteous is, is to take Christ and cover me in his righteousness, clothe me in Christ. So when I take Christ and superimpose him on myself, now when the Lord looks at me, he sees me in Christ's righteousness. He sees me in white linen, the righteousness of Christ, you see. Point number four, there's a universal need for righteousness. Verses 22 and 23. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a universal need. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody's lived up to the standard. Some of us might do better than others, but we're still falling innumerably short. It's a, imagine if we all went to the Grand Canyon, and we're all standing on one side of the Grand Canyon, and we all get a running start and go as fast as we can, and we all jump as far as we can to see who could get the farthest across the Grand Canyon. Some of us are going to get further than others, I'm sure. But I doubt any of us are going to make it all the way across. We're all going to come up, you know, way, way, way short. So is it going to matter that Andrew's able to jump 10 feet further than me? We're all going to be dead at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And so we could look at the world and say, hey, you know what? I'm more righteous than that guy, or I'm doing better than him. But the standard's making it across the Grand Canyon. And none of us are going to make it. The only one that's made it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's this universal need. Everybody needs Christ's righteousness. But there's also a universal provision. Look at verse 22. It says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all those who believe. This could be said, the righteousness of God through faith is available for all those who believe. Yeah, everybody needs it, but it's available to everybody. When I talk about the doctrines of grace, some have a hard time because they think God didn't make salvation available for everybody. We imagine that there's this 
group of people that really want to be with God. They really want to know the Lord. But, you know, Bouncer Peter's like, nope, you're on the list. You're not getting in. <laughs> you know? The doorman's just like, hey, yeah, heaven ain't here close. Not tonight. That's not true. That group of people doesn't exist. Everybody that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nobody who genuinely wants to be with God who won't be with God. The imputed righteousness of Christ is available for everyone. All one has to do is exercise saving faith and it will be accredited to them. But sometimes I think we have a hard time distinguishing what is saving faith. What's the difference between saving faith and just regular faith? If I confess Christ, is there a chance that I don't have saving faith? Well, yeah, there are people in the Bible that confess Christ that didn't have saving faith. Read Acts chapter 8. This guy, Simon Magus, this magician, he confesses Jesus. He gets baptized. And then Simon, er, Peter and John come to check out what's happening there in Samaria. And they start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they're like, we didn't even know there was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples start laying hands on them and praying. And people are getting baptized by the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And this guy Simon Magus says, hey, I want to buy that from you. I want to be able to lay hands on people and make them speak in tongues. And Peter says, no. Your money perished with you. You're not right with God. This guy had confessed Christ, he'd been baptized, and he wasn't saved. He had counterfeit faith. He's a make believer, as I said. So, what's the difference between saving faith and make believer? Saving faith seeks after God, make believe is seek after the benefits of God but not God. They're after what God could provide for them, but they don't, they're not really interested in God. We have a hard time with this verse, Romans 3.11. I read it earlier. There's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. We struggle with this verse because we all know folks who seem like they're seeking after God. They're coming to church. They're they're looking for, you know, healing or, you know, some kind of provision in or, you know, they, 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 they want God to do something for them. But the reality is the unbeliever isn't seeking the God of the Bible. They're seeking the benefits that the God of the Bible provides. And they seem unto God until they hear his word, and then all of a sudden they're repulsed by it, and they don't want anything to do with it. Remember in John chapter 6? Jesus feeds this crowd with the, the, the loaves and the fishes, and they all get fed. And then the next day, they're all seeking out Jesus, right? They're all excited. Hey, let's go find Jesus. And they're, they're running and down, and they're coming to Jesus. Remember what Jesus says to them? He says, you're not seeking me. You want what I could provide. You just want the food. You want me to feed you again. You don't want me. And then he proves it to them. Because he says something hard. He says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And what did the crowd do? They were offended, and they left. They didn't want Jesus. They just wanted what Jesus could provide for them. That's what the, the, the make-believer does. They're not truly seeking God. But what did the disciples do? They stayed, because Jesus has the words of eternal life. See, God has drawn them to Jesus and changed their hearts. Now they actually want Jesus. They believe in Jesus, and they're credited with his righteousness. But nobody starts actually seeking God until God takes that step of drawing them to Jesus and changing their hearts. The fact is, is Jesus' righteousness is needed by all, and it's available for all. Point number five, righteousness is a gift bought by God. Look at verse 24. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I like the way that the King James translates this. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption. 
that is in Christ Jesus. I like that. Just as I freely by his grace. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Call everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread? Why and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. It's a free gift. Use it freely. John Ruskin was an English writer in the 19th century. He went to Oxford. He wrote on many subjects, wrote many books. He, he really liked to write on theology and philosophy and political stuff. But he says this. He says, I believe that the root of every schism and heresy for which the Christian church has suffered has been the effort to earn salvation rather than receive it. And that one reason why preaching is so ineffective is it calls on men oftener to work for God than to behold God working for them. See, the second we exercise saving faith, we're as righteous as we're ever going to be in God's eyes. We can't be more righteous. We're as righteous as Jesus in the eyes of the Father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. If you're in Christ, you could look in that mirror and say that is the righteousness of God. Because God looks at it and sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't get more righteous than that. So there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to make God think that you're more righteous than you are because you're as righteous as you can get in God's eyes. You're as righteous as Jesus is. And might I add, he'll never love you more either. The second that you're saved, he loves you as much as he's ever going to love you because he loves you as much as he loves his only begotten son. In verse 24, the word redemption has the idea of buying back a prisoner of war or a slave for a monetary price. It literally means liberation through the payment of price. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that <coughs> no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that he, we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. See, we're redeemed by Christ's blood. It was a gift. Our job is to receive it. Our job is to be thankful for it. Our job is to enjoy the heck out of it. But we need to remember it was a gift. We didn't do anything to earn it. There's nothing we could do to repay it. It's when we forget these truths that we get ourselves in trouble. If you add anything to grace, it's no longer grace. Right? And the second we try to repay it, we're no longer receiving it in grace. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. 
What does it mean that in the forbearance of God, he passed over sin? What is Paul talking about there? This word propitiation here in verse 25 is an interesting word. It's the Greek word peristerion. In one sense, it means uh, to satisfy. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross satisfied or appeased God's wrath against sin. God is angry. He's wrathful against sin. And Jesus absorbed all that wrath in the three hours that he hung on the cross where God says, all right, I'm satisfied. Enough. I'm not angry against sin. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 says this, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. How could God, how could the Lord be pleased to crush his only son? Putting him to grief. Because it appeased his wrath against sin and allows us to be righteous, allows us to be accepted, allows us to be in his presence. It goes on to say, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. It's going to be satisfied through the anguish of Jesus. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. In the... Uh, Septuagint, polysterion, is used uh, slightly different. This, this Greek word is used speaking of the mercy seat, the, the covering that went over the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the mercy seat was the place where once a year, the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would take the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would put that blood on this mercy seat, and it would satisfy God. It would appease God. It would cover the sins of Israel for a year until the next year when they needed to do it again. This wouldn't forgive their sin, but it would cover their sin enough to where they could be right with God until the real payment by Jesus was made. God was able to look over their sin and forbear it because there was these coverings happening year after year after year. But the payment would eventually have to be made. Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to forgive sin. Right? That wasn't going to work. It was just going to cover it for a time. But sooner or later, the payment was going to be due. And Jesus comes, and he makes that payment. I like to think that the Old Testament saints were saved on credit. They got the benefits of salvation. They got to enjoy their salvation. Their salvation was applied to their life before the cross, but it was paid for later on. We get our salvation on debit, right? We, we get the benefits in that, but it was paid for 2,000 years ago. They got to enjoy it before it was paid for. May God forbear their sins. Point number six, imputing righteousness doesn't change God's character. Look at verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've talked about some pretty amazing things that justification brings us as believers. Right? I mean, this is a pretty incredible gift that the Lord's given us. But I think the most incredible thing is what we're talking about right here. That God was able to justify us and not change his nature. God was able to be the justifier, but he remained just in doing so. You see, this is the big problem. Because God is holy. God is a just judge. And if he, was, and if it, he is just, and he overlooked our sin, he would no longer be holy or just. And then he would change, and he would no longer be God. He wouldn't be immutable. 
So God has to maintain his character as a holy and just God to figure out a way to forgive sinners, to overlook our sin, to be gracious to us. And so that's the problem. That's the dilemma. That's what all religion is trying to solve. But God did that in sending his son to fulfill the law for us, that act of obedience. And then to take the punishment that we deserve in his passive obedience. You see, on the cross, God heaped his wrath against sin upon his son. And Jesus absorbed all that wrath until there was no more to give. And he shouted, Tetelestai. It is finished. It was accomplished. The wrath of God has been appeased. It's been satisfied. God is no longer angry with sinners as long as they're in Christ. So through Jesus, God was able to justify many yet remain just. He didn't overlook or excuse sin. No, he judged the innocent on our behalf. So he's able to be the just and the justifier. Point number seven. We aren't justified by our works, but we are justified to perform good works. Turn with me to James chapter 2. I want you guys to, to see this. Oftentimes, people think that James and Paul are kind of in conflict with each other. They think that they present two different ways of salvation. They say Paul says that we're saved by grace, we're made righteous through faith, and then James says that we are made right through works. James two fourteen through eighteen says, "What use is it, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him?" If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may say, well, or someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith. Kind of sounds like it's in conflict with what Paul was saying, right? Are we justified apart from our works? Are we justified by faith? The truth is they're talking about two different things, though. They're talking about two different times in Abraham's life. See, Paul says that Abraham believed God, that, that he would provide an heir, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham is justified by faith. James says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but not works? This isn't talking about justification. This is talking about proclamation. James says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but not works? Right? This guy's saying he has faith. He's proclaiming, I have faith. But there's no works to back it up. See, the man in James' hypothetical says, be warned, be filled, but there's nothing to help the person. In other words, he didn't really mean what he was saying. He was being facetious. His actions didn't correspond to what he said. He had dead faith. In verse 19, James goes on to say, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. He says, Was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? This word justified is used 
probably about seven different ways you could use this word integrate. It's used different ways in the New Testament. Here, it, it, it's not being used to, to say to be declared righteous. No, it's, it's being used in, in the sense of being vindicated. In Matthew eleven nineteen, the Pharisees, they're accusing Jesus of being a drunkard, a glutton man, gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Remember what Jesus says? He says to him, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Or the King James says, but wisdom is justified by her children. Right? Wisdom is justified by her children. I'm sure we'd all agree that Jesus isn't saying that wisdom is declared righteous by her children. And that really wouldn't make much sense. He's saying that wisdom will be vindicated by what it produces. In the same way, Abraham's faith was vindicated when he offered Isaac. His faith became tangible. The fruit of his faith became visible. <laughs> and this is the way that it should be. Right? Regeneration should radically change us to the point that we start producing good works. When we're truly justified, when our heart is truly changed, our, our, our nature should be so radically different that we're living to produce fruit. We're living to produce good works for Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we love that verse, right? We're saved by faith. Saved by grace through faith. But verse 10 goes on to say, for we are his workmanship. We're his piece of art. Not of works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God has good works prepared for us to walk into. And if we are truly saved, we're going to be walking into these good works and we're going to be glorifying God. But we're not saved by those works. Those works evidence that we have truly been saved. They vindicate the, the confession that we make that we are in Christ. Lastly, I'm almost done. The doctrine of justification by faith alone gives the believer assurance. Fill in the word assurance. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I don't know about you guys, but one of the ways that I get attacked the most by Satan is he, he, he tries to create doubt about the reality of my salvation. Have you guys ever experienced that? Or you guys are like, Satan's trying to make you think, yeah, I'm not really saved. I'm really a, a reprobate, you know, I'm deceived. When I was working with the Bible College in Jerusalem, we'd get two dozen students every semester, and they'd be with us for 90 days. And at some point during that 90 days, every single one of them would come to me and would say that, that same thing. How do I know I'm really saved? I don't feel like I'm really saved. I, I think that, you know, I'm a false convert. And Satan, like I said, tries to make me feel like an imposter. Sometimes I feel like, man, what, what, if, what if I'm just deceived? What, what if I'm not really saved? What if I'm really a false teacher? What if I'm just like a Judas and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, just doing this, but I'm really not saved? And when I start thinking these things, I go right to Romans 8.33. At least I try to. And I think this, God has justified me. God's declared me righteous. God can't lie. God has all the authority in the world. Who's going to come and, and say no, that, that you're, you're, you're not righteous, you're not saved, when God has said that you are? Who has more authority than God? Who's going to be able to override his declaration and me being righteous? When we think about it, and we realize that it's God, the one who has all authority in the world, who has declared us righteous, who could bring a charge against us? Nobody can. And that's what's the beauty about justification by faith. 
Because God has declared us justified. He's declared us righteous. You see, because if, if by my works, I could stop doing good works. I could start doing bad works. I could blow it. I could, you know, a million different things that could happen that could cause me to lose my salvation or to fall out of grace. But if I'm righteous because God has declared me righteous, and God can't change, and God can't lie, God has all authority in the world, then guess what? I can trust that I'm righteous and God right. That I've been justified by faith. Amen? So God, I thank you that you have justified us. I thank you that we have that confidence. I thank you that you've made us as righteous in your eyes as we can ever be. I pray that you would help us to cease striving, to, to stand and rest in the gospel and trust that you're, you're working in us, Lord, that you love us, that you're satisfied with us. And I pray that from the basis of that, you would produce good works for you. This world would see our good works and they would glorify you, glorify our Father who is in heaven. So I thank you for everyone here, Lord. I pray that you confirm that in our heart, that we are justified, that we are righteous, that we are going to spend eternity with you. And I pray that you use us to protect your kingdom. I pray you give us people to witness to. I pray that you bring people to your son through us, Lord. I thank you for everybody here. I pray for those that aren't here. I pray that you bring them back to us, Lord. But we love you. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.